You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2, the verses 21 through 40. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought him in the, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce his own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phenuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, They returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I'll now turn to the Old Testament, to our text, which is Isaiah chapter 2, the verses 1 through 5. We've begun a series in this book of Isaiah. We considered Isaiah chapter 1 two weeks ago. And the the sin of the people that was so prevalent in that chapter and the call to repentance as well as pointing them to the salvation that God will accomplish for the people. And then in an about face, in a surprising way, we get this prophecy in chapter 2, the verses 1 through 5, which we'll consider this morning as well as this afternoon in the proclamation of God's word. And so we hear God's word in Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. 
The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, a short time ago, the United States of America and the world, really, celebrated an historic day and an historic event. Just over 50 years ago now, on August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. stood at the very end of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom and delivered one of the most famous speeches of all time. It's famous because it's powerful. He used the words and the pictures of Scripture and of Negro spirituals and of American history. And King pointed out to the people there assembled before him and those watching on television the injustice of racism and of the racial discrimination which was happening across their country. And he called in that speech the people to join together to racial unity and harmony. And at the end of his speech, he famously mentioned his dream. I have a dream today, he kept repeating. I have a dream today. As he painted a picture of total racial equality and peace between blacks and whites. His speech is famous for good reason. He captured the hearts of the people. He, he captured their vision. He gave them a vision. And he, he makes you long for the very things that he was giving his life for. In our text this morning, we read about a dream. A very famous dream. Another dream. This is the dream that came to Isaiah, son of Amos. It says, this is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. What it literally says is, this is the word that Amos saw. He envisioned a revelation of God. And then he describes his dream. But his dream, the dream of Isaiah, is of an entirely different character than that of Martin Luther King. This is not Isaiah's hope for Israel. It's not his perspective. He's not rhetorically trying to cast a vision for the people as as powerful as that may be. No, this is God's word to Isaiah. This is God's revelation. This is God's promise. This vision as incredible and Amazing as it sounds, as as out of this world and beyond this world, as the things that Isaiah saw seem. These words are God's promise to his people and to all the nations of the world. A future 
where the nations will worship as one. Where the kingdoms of this earth will lay down their swords, will disarm their bombs, will put away their chemical weapons. Where God, our God, the Lord Yahweh, and He alone will be worshipped. What does Isaiah see? He sees one mountain. The mountain of the Lord's temple. That would be the temple mount of Zion, of Jerusalem. Lifted up. Higher than all the other mountains of the world. The mountains, of course, in those days were the places where gods, the gods of the nations resided. You can think of the Greeks who had their pantheon of gods on Olympus. You can think of the high places which were all over the land of Israel when they were worshipping false gods. They went up on the mountains to worship the false gods there because they believed that's where they lived. But Isaiah sees in his vision that all these other mountains will shrink and the mountain of the Lord will be established as chief, as the only mountain of all the worship in the world. What Isaiah sees is the nations streaming up to this temple. These nations that had once worshipped false gods, streaming up to this one God as God's word and the teaching of God's law streams out. So they stream up against the forces of gravity up to God to hear His word as it flows out upon them from God Himself. And what Isaiah sees is these nations so often and always at war with each other. These nations that in Isaiah's time were, were constantly fighting when, when Assyria was on the rise in the east, building their war machine and, and conquering nations, when Egypt was trying to hold its own against so many enemies. When other nation states were sort of trying to fill the void, fill the vacuum, this was a time of worldwide warfare. And Isaiah envisions the nations putting down their weapons and joining together in peace and prosperity, pursuing peace and not war. This is what Isaiah sees. What do we make of this dream of Isaiah? Martin Luther's, Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision was a call to racial unity. It was seen as a grand vision, something which everyone realized would not be accomplished anytime soon and perhaps never. But yet it inspired hope. But Isaiah is not calling people to, to capture the vision of a dream. To, to hope beyond hope. He's also not calling for simply racial unity and harmony. He's calling for international peace and universal worship. What do we make of this dream of Isaiah? Is this some kind of political utopia? Is Isaiah reaching too far? Is this imagery something which we cannot understand? How does this dream become a reality? Through pacifism? Political activism? 
What would Isaiah have us do with this far-fetched dream? Well, to make sense of it, we need to hear what Isaiah says at the end of his dream. As the Word of God comes to him, he follows up this vision of this mountain of the, and of universal worship, and he says, Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This vision is a call to worship. It's a call to worship this Lord. He says, one day everyone, all the nations will come and worship him. So what do you do now? You worship God. You join in that throng even before they come together. You have to walk in the light of the Lord. Live this changed life that comes through God's grace as he works forgiveness and renewal within you. Isaiah is calling Judah, the wicked people of Judah, as chapter 1 recounted in so many ways, to abandon their sin, leave it behind, and worship God and Him alone, to exalt God in their hearts. But you have to realize that Isaiah wasn't calling Judah, the people of God, to worship on the basis of some political or religious ideal that was close to his own heart. No, what he sees is the promise of God. It is the Word of God. And this vision is the Word of God fulfilled, as we read in Luke chapter 2, in the coming of Jesus Christ. This vision is made real in and through and only in and through Jesus Christ, the gospel that Jesus Christ, the son of God, the mediator has come from God for the salvation of all those who put their trust in him. The coming of Jesus Christ, his perfect life and his death on the cross has lifted high the temple of God. Yes, Jesus Christ himself has been lifted up to the right hand of God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, after he was lifted out, lifted up, was spread out to all the nations of the world so that people of all tribes and tongues and nations have and continue to be called to worship him. And they are answering the call. This gospel transforms the hearts of former enemies to make them lay down their arms and call on God united together in worship. This is happening and it's been happening ever since our Lord ascended to the right hand of God. This gospel brings former enemies together in the embrace of fellowship and in the grip of real and deep and lasting peace. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are joined in this morning as we worship God. We are those nations streaming to the mountain of God to hear the word of the Lord. We are the people from every Every nation on earth gathered here this morning, simply in this group, not to mention the church around the world, from every continent on this earth, joined together in the peace that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, who has paid for our sin and brought us near to God. 
And so let us rejoice. Let us rejoice. We have a dream, not of some distant hope, but of a present reality through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let us rejoice in the gift of true unity and peace that we have through the ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us put aside our differences. Let us put down our arms and join in following the ways of the Lord. Let us stream to the hill of Golgotha, raised up chief among all the hills of this world, and let us there together worship the Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.